if you grew up in the, the church as I did, uh, prior to the 70s, probably the only uh, worship music you, you heard were hymns. Now, unless you're probably in the West Coast and California, and Lord knows all what they did there. But, but in the 70s, something started to creep into the church called praise choruses. And initially, they were embraced by everybody because they were nice. But when it looked like they might start to take over, oh, then the battles began. Um, the difference between praise songs and hymns. It says, not long ago, a farmer went to the city one weekend and attended the big city church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. Well, then if I was to repeat the whole thing two or three times, that would be a praise chorus. A young new Christian from the big city attended the small town church one weekend. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the young man, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different, said the young man. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, <clears throat> Oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, imitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals who can explain, there in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's Son or his reign, unless from the mild, tempting corn they are fenced. Yet those cows in glad, bovine, rebellious delight have broke free their shackles, their warm pens askewed. Then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild chili wax sweet corn have chewed. So look to that bright shining day by and by, where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then, if I were to do only verses 1, 3, and 4, and do a key change at the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. <laughs> it's all a perspective thing, at least in many ways, isn't it? Um... Worship, You know, it, it's interesting, and we, when we talk about it, again, the, the series, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being tempted by Satan just before he starts his ministry. Last temptation, Satan brings Jesus to a pinnacle on earth where he can supernaturally see all of the kingdoms on the earth. And Satan says, please, kingdoms, Jesus. I know you're after these, but they belong to me. It's not going to be real easy to get them. But I'll give them to you. You just got to do one thing. I want you to bow down and worship me. Now, we might think, and I did for a long time, you know, Satan is some major egomaniac, isn't he? I mean, my goodness, he's got the whole world, and he's going to give it away for just someone bowing down in a few words. What's he, crazy? What, is this guy, what kind of an ego trip is he on? 
Unless Satan understands something about worship that we don't. There's a power there that alters the one who's worshipped in some instances. Certainly alters the one who does the worshipping. But there's something super spiritual that transpires during that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came across a gal, a nameless minority gal, who had one burning question in her heart, and that was about worship. Now, it's fascinating when you look at the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, you got a, a sophisticated, rich, governor, senator-type person, leader, comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, Jesus got a question. How can a person connect with God? How can I get into the kingdom of God? Very next chapter, you've got a poor, nameless, minority woman with a very checkered past and a suspect religion asking just about the same thing. How do you connect with God? If you've got your Bibles, look with me at John chapter 4. We're going to really use this just as kind of a springboard to get us where we really want to go this morning. But John chapter 4. If you weren't here last week, grab the CD because we um, were downloaded it for free at, uh, on our webpage because we really un- unpacked chapter 4 a little bit more. But in verse 20... Uh, Jesus had talked with the gal, stirred up a conversation. The, the uh, uh, woman comes to realize, because Jesus revealed it, that he's got some sort of uh, direct pipeline to God. He's a prophet. He knows some stuff that no one else should know. He, he, he understands. He's got a truth about him that is divine, that is supernatural. And so she asks him a question, one that's burning on her heart. A question, I, I believe that um, however else you would couch it, is being asked probably by every person just about in this world regardless of where they are, regardless of what's going on, however else they might couch it. She couches it this way. How can we connect with God? What is the right way to worship? In verse, verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. It's in Samaria. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And she's saying, do all religions lead to God? I mean, you're the one. You seem to have a direct pipeline to heaven. Tell me. Are we all getting there? Does it really not matter exactly how, the what? Is it really, what, what is it all about? Can you, are they all a game? And this is an interesting question when you think in the United States. We've got 2,000 different Protestant denominations. Uh, many of them, as you know, walk up with each other. Accusations, anger, just like the Jews and the Samaritans. We're doing it right. No, we're doing it right. You think you're doing it right? We're doing it now. Back and forth. We've got the same conversations going on today. And a thinking person somewhere in the back of their mind as they're laying asleep, getting ready to go to sleep at night in their bed would be saying, is this all a game or what? What is true? And that's what she's asking. What is true? Jesus responds. Verse 21, then Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, that's Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. It says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. We talked about this last week. The Samaritans just took the first five books of the Bible, so they missed a whole lot of, of the rest of the Old Testament that describes who God is, that describes worship. They were worshiping basically in ignorance. This idea of, of Gerizim and Jerusalem, two opposites, and they're both enemies of the church. They're both enemies of worship. Gerizim would be more, I am I am." truly want, this woman, very sincere, I want to know you. But she's worshiping outside of truth. Jesus says, that's not, it's not going to work. 
But in Jerusalem, Jews had the opposite problem. They had the truth, right? Legalism was, was big time in the Pharisaical world. They had the truth. And Jesus said, that's not going to work either. And I think for myself, for us who grew up in the evangelical, denominational, Protestant tradition, we probably have a tendency to maybe lean this way. Partially because we feel like there's so much non-truth out there, and there is, that we kind of swing the pendulum a little bit. But Jesus says, that's, 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 that is equally not right. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I just got to take a uh, tangential parenthetical deal for just a second. You see, you see the text, it says... Um, uh, will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. You see that, that article, the, and you see the big S. Typically, when you're reading through the New Testament, that, that means the Holy Spirit, right? But just so you know, just so, so you know uh, this is the New International Version, the latest uh, edition. I can't get into it all, but for some reason, Zondervan has pulled the 84 uh, edition off of the internet search engines. You can't find it. This is the translator's um, deal. There's no article in the Greek. There's no capital S in the Greek. The former New International Version has shall worship in spirit and in truth. They don't have an article and they don't have a big S. The English Standard Version does not have an article and a big S. It says shall worship in spirit and in truth. The New American Standard doesn't have an article and a big S. Shall worship in spirit and in truth is what they say. The King James Version does not have an article and a big S. It's shall worship in spirit and truth. The latest New International Version has said has put this in there. I just want to mention that because some of you might have that version. Just so you know, New International Version, the latest edition, is in the minority. Most Bible translators would would say, I'm at, that this is talking about the spirit of man. It's, it's the spirit of man. It's, it's worshiping with your heart. Now, what we want to do is we want to unpack these two things just a little bit. This is worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because what Jesus says is very, 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 very important. He says, ma'am, it's not about the externals. It's not about where you go. Worshiping is not something you got to do in church or in a place or in a locale. It doesn't include a lot of the external stuff that we think it includes. Oh, no, no, no. But there are two things you have to have to worship. It has to be in spirit and it has to be in truth. So what we want to do for, for, for just the next few minutes is we want to look at a psalm that is probably the premier psalm on worship and unpack these two. That's Psalm 95. Would you look over Psalm 95? We're gonna, we, we won't, I won't have you turn anymore, but Psalm 95. And if you don't have it, you've got, you should maybe you've got a Bible in Purek in front of you. Psalm 95. It says, come. And, and listen, this, if you... Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountains peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. 
For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath and in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. This psalm in Latin is referred to as finita. It's the first word, come. Just a couple observations before we get into the spirit and truth part. Notice that uh, this psalm, not only does it teach us about worship, but it's a call to worship. Come. Let us worship. You think about this. To worship aright is a command. Not I'm going to go to church, you know, if I'm kind of feeling and the music is kind of in the right key. I'm going to be, it's going to work. But maybe I won't. Maybe I'm not there. Maybe I'm not interested. It's a command to worship him. It's a command. Also notice, this is interesting, that the uh, verb tense is, it's all plurals. Uh, and and this, this, this is now tense. So this is interesting because there is an individual personal, personal worship, which is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Matter of fact, I would say if you're not worshiping personally, when you come for corporate worship, you probably might not be worshiping either. But what this text talks about is corporate worship. Let us sing for the, the joy of the Lord. Come let us before him. Uh, he says, come let us bow down. Let us kneel, for he is our God. There is a call in scripture to corporate worship that we cannot avoid. We think sometimes I'm just going to come and get the show. And I'm going to come and hear the word maybe. But see, if I'm really worshiping, maybe I'll get the radio. Maybe I'll get my CD thing going. Maybe I'll listen to some MP3 somewhere. And see, that in my car, that's when I'm going to worship. But I'm not going to, that doesn't happen here. Just so you know. That's alien to the text. Corporate worship, yes, but not the expense of, of, of uh, private worship, yes, but not the expense of, of corporate worship. Uh, as, as, we, as we look into this just a little, little bit further, let's, let's define worship for us. I know we looked at it last week, but again, verse 6. It says, come let us bow down in worship. Let me just point some things out. Let's connect the dots, okay? Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Literally, it's let us prostrate ourselves. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. Think about that picture for a minute. Every one of those words, uh, they're words of allegiance, right? They're words of coming before a sovereign king, not as his equal, not as just my good old buddy or friend, but I am recognizing who he is and, and, and who I, I'm not. Right? In verse 3, and the text gives us two reasons why we worship. In verse 3, you see the four. Why do you worship? For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the land. Um, what he's saying is, is the ancients believed that there were lots of gods. They had their own piece of geography. They were over different elements, the rain and whatever. He goes, but here, they're reminding us, no, no, there's, there's, our God is over all. He made the land. He made the water. He's over all. There's nothing in this world, nothing that is worthy of our worship but our God. Our God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere. He's eternal. He's, he's infinite. He's all these things that blow your mind. If you've been reading in Knowledge of the Holy, fascinating that, that every time they describe God, or quite often, he describe him with terms like like. He's kind of, he's like this. He had the appearance of this. He was like this because he's so other than anything we can get our, our, our head around. And so he's saying, for our God is great. But it goes beyond that in verse 7. Not only is he a great God, like we would if we were in the presence of some uh, major person, 
but he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We recognize who he is. We recognize who we are. We're his flock. And it's doesn't, not demeaning like you're just a bunch of dumb sheep. It's, it's, a, it's a term of endearment. It's a relationship. The shepherd, this great God, is committed to you. Even when you're not thinking about him, even when you don't care, even when you're, whatever, you're ugly, you're doing all this stuff, he's committed to you, he's the good shepherd, he, he protects, he cares for everything that he is, he brings upon in you in his will for your life. That's why you worship. Now, think about that, therefore, what, this, what is worship? Well, it's a bowing down, recognizing who he is, it's remembering that he's God, he's the great God, he's limitless, me on the other hand. I'm one of his sheep. I'm limited. I'm underneath him. We can say worship is this. Let's see it on the screen. When all that I am rightly responds to all that he is, that's, that's worship. When all that I am rightly responds to all that he is. That's why Job, remember, remember Job? Uh, everything goes bad for Job, Right? I mean, at the beginning, it's, it's, it's all of his kids are killed, loses everything financial. I mean, it's a big mess. And then what, what happens? This is the next slide. So that this, Job got up, he tore his robe and shaved his head. That's a sign of mourning. He's not in denial. He's not saying, well, life is happy anyway. No, life is not happy. Life is a bad scene right now for Job. Then he fell to the ground in worship. You doubt he was singing songs right here. What is it? Run worship. And he said, this is what worship is. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Next. Job would go on to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Next slide. This is Job. Listen to this. It's incredible. You think we can only worship when things is good? I want to sing celebrative songs? Uh-uh. But if I go to the east, he's not there. It's God, Job talking. I don't, I don't see God in the east. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Job says, this is worship. When I don't see him, and I pray, I pray hard, please help, and I don't understand why everything is going bad, and he's not saying anything, and it's, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. He's nowhere to be found still. But I trust him. I trust him. And I'm, maybe I'm going through some sort of test, and if I die before I see the end of it, now we know the end of the story, he didn't, but he was thinking he would. If I die, though he slay me, I'm still going to trust him. He keeps that relationship. He keeps bowing down. God is God. I'm one of his sheep. I don't understand, but I trust him. This is worship. When all of who I am rightly responds to all of who he is. This is why we're doing the worship project, because we need to know more of all of who he is. And as we see all of who he is, we begin to see more of all who I am. Remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6. When he's, Isaiah's thinking he's fine until he sees God in the temple. And what's he say? Woe is me. I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of, it's not, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's not like they were all into swearing or anything. He knows that their mouth is connected to their heart and their heart is unclean. It's unacceptable by God's standards. And sometimes you don't see that about yourself until you see the majesty and the excellencies of, of God. Uh, just, 
goes on, and this is where we see the spirit and truth aspects connect, this idea of all of who I am. Worship reports, not just my singing. That's the singing's there and the spirit part is not it's not it's not it's not worship. What does in spirit look like? Well, two different things. But notice number one. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. This is loud shouting. This is loud. This is celebrative. Psalm 150 would also then name every instrument that they knew and said, praise the Lord with these instruments. There is no sacred instruments and not sacred instruments. Not according to God. Praise him with everything. Be loud about it. Celebrative. That's worship. But also... Verse 6, come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Sometimes worship is silent. It's reverent and still, quiet. There's no form that this is worship and this isn't. There's no instruments. This is worship and this isn't. Jesus said the externals are external. Don't elevate those to primary places. Keep them secondary. They're important, but they're secondary. Spirit, uh, Isaiah one. Oh, let me let me read this for you because this is fascinating. Isaiah one. God is talking to His people. He says this. He says, "I have more than enough of burnt offerings and of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, which by the way he commanded that they, that they take care of, that they watch. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moons and festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. It's quite the indictment. Why? 29 verse 13. He says that these people, they they draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. Check it out. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is just rules taught by men. If, if we go through just the externals, whatever they might be, we're going to the church, we're, we're singing, we're, we're putting money in the offering plate, we're serving, but our heart is not there. God says, your worship burdens me. Stop it, is what he says. Don't even come. Don't even come. If you seek to worship without spirit, it's not worship. It's not worship. What does spirit look like? We see this... Throughout scripture, you find it in Psalm 42.1. It's the deer pants for flowing streams, right? So longs my soul for you, O Lord. Uh, Psalm 63, where he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you as in a dry and, and weary land where there is no water. We find this in, in Isaiah as well, where Isaiah says, Yes, Lord, walking in the light of your law, that's the truth part, Walk in the light of your heart. We wait for you. Your name and desire, your name and renown, not mine, are the desire of my heart. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. We find Apostle Paul. I mean, this is, everybody was walking close to the Lord in the scripture. This is, this is their heart. Acts 20.24, Paul says that I don't consider my life worth anything to myself. Because people were saying, you know, you're going to die, Paul. He says, I don't care. 
My only purpose is this, that I may finish the task that, that, that God has given me, the task of, of, of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I, that my job is just to honor him. Paul's in prison in Philippians 3. I'll tell you what, if I'm in prison in, in Philippians 3, especially the prisons back then, where you just chained and you went to the bathroom on yourself and they were rat infested and it was just an awful mess. Paul is there and I'm, I'm praying, please get me out of this mess. Paul says, I want to know him. That's my desire. Oh my goodness. When the heart has to, is involved in worship, all those things, like the song we said, I cannot help but sing. We can't help but honor him. But when we come, week after week after week, if our heart is disengaged, we got to know. Whatever else it may be, it's not worship. Matter of fact, it's probably pretty dangerous because it makes us think that, that we are engaged when in fact, according to God, we are, are not engaged. So the spirit has got to be a key part of this. So there's a quote, Stephen Sharnock wrote, a Puritan writer, he wrote, the existence and attributes of God. Big, be glad we're not doing that for summer Project because there are two volumes and they're big old thick volumes. But this is this is what Sharnick says. He says, "Without the heart, there is no worship. It is a stage play in acting a part without being that person really, which is acted by us. A hypocrite in the notion of the word is a stage player. We may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship God if we lack sincerity." Interesting stuff, was it? Another quote, Everett Fulman. Fulham. Fulham is an Episcopal, evangelical Episcopal uh, priest. He says this, it's interesting. He says, have you any idea how easy it is to substitute human traditions for practical obedience to the word of God? I'm thinking of a woman whose life passion is the length of candles on the altar. If the priest's stole is the slightest bit out of balance, it absolutely invalidates the service for the poor woman. I have a theory about her. I think that people who do not have a growing personal relationship with the living God often fasten to the externals of worship. You begin to tamper with the external and you're touching the thing nearest to God that they know anything about. When persons have a sustaining relationship with the Lord God, they can worship with the old prayer book, we would say in our church, or the new prayer book, or no prayer book at all. They could have candles or no candles. They understand that these things are external things. These help but they're not necessary. It's real important for us that we recognize the aspects of worship, the, the accoutrements of worship. They're important, but sometimes we, we have them cross over with what is biblical. And we can say, these are important, but what's God say? Christ says spirit. And then in truth, really important truth. Psalm 95, verse 8, says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, as you did on that day at Massa in the desert when your fathers tested me and tried me, though they had uh, seen what I did. Now, they just came out of Egypt. They saw the ten plagues. They saw God, the, the, the Red Sea. They, they, they watched all this. They participated in this stuff. And then they got out into the desert and they started going, oh, we're so thirsty. We're all going to die of thirst. And God wasn't thinking. He could do the other stuff, but he forgot about this one. And God's... Getting, humanly speaking, getting frustrated with these guys. So he's getting ready to, to slap them down. And then he says, uh, uh, finally he gives them water from the rock. But what he says is their heart, their attitude. Because see, they heard the word. They heard the truth. 
but they didn't apply it. This is, this is real important for us. When Jesus says worship in truth, it doesn't just mean that the guy up front preaching is uh, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, just, just Jesus him, himself. If we don't do anything with it, that's what he means by, by truth. Romans 12. This is so good. Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, proper worship. Your true, proper worship, if we went on to verse 2, would let your mind be renewed by the word of God. Just hearing truth, but not hearing truth, is not what Jesus is talking about. I'm not saying this real well, but you begin to see this. Uh, This is exciting to me. The spirit has to be acted upon by something, and it can't just be our whims and our feelings and our emotions, all of which are always very suspect. The truth has to act upon something. It can't just be coming one ear in one ear and out the other. It has to have the spirit. So Jesus is saying you have to have both aspects. You've got to have the truth. All worship it, it, it comes right from the word of God. It comes, it's a proper response to the word of God. The word and worship are indissolubly linked together. You can't separate them. There's no divorce possible. Folk will say to me sometimes, music is going so good. They'll call that worship. That's going so good. Do we have to have preaching? Yeah, you have to have preaching. Some folk will say, you know, I'm not interested in the music. Can't we just be preaching more and kill some of the sons? They are both part of it. We've got to communicate. We've got to worship. We've got to praise our God corporately. It's a command. And it has to be uh, directly linked to the word, word of God. It's got to be in truth. Uh, to not is just straight up dangerous. Re- remember Leviticus chapter 10. Remember you had Moses and Aaron? And they went and let my people go, and they saw lots of stuff. But Aaron's getting kind of old. He's getting ready to, to pass along. He's going to die, and so he's got to pass off the priesthood to his two boys, guys that are directly related. I mean, they're his sons, Nadab and Abihu are their names. And they're going to take over. They're going to be the main guys. I mean, other than, than Joshua's taking over for Moses, they're going to take over for Aaron. They're going to be the main guys. And so when they come to worship, I'm, let's just assume that they are sincere. What happens? Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They knew the word. They were the priests. They knew the word. But for whatever reason, they thought, you know what, maybe I'm sincere, I'm in the moment, I'm feeling good, uh, that they could deviate from the truth. When we seek to worship God, they weren't doing anything bad. They're not you know, selling drugs on the street corner to, to school kids. They're seeking to worship God. But when we seek to worship God outside of what he said, that's what Jesus says. You've got to have the spirit. You've got to have the heart. And you've got to have the truth. The two have to be married. You can't, there's a tension, I know. But you've got to marry the two. They've got to be a part of it. So in, in, our, in our worship of God, we get so tight, we can get so lost up in all the secondary issues, all the uh, accoutrements of it. We have to remember those two aspects. You know, I mentioned him earlier, Everett Fulham. He gave a story one time of a Episcopal church in upstate New York. He said that the uh, new rector came. The former rector had been there for thirty-five years, and and I mean everybody in the church knew him very well, and he he you know saw many of them. Uh, 
born and married and they have kids of their own and on and on and on. Well, the new guy comes and he really wants to, to please the congregation. He really wants them to like him and all those kind of things. But about a month and a half, there's a big division between himself and the congregation. He's not sure what's going on, but he can feel it. The things aren't right. So he called in one of his lay leaders and said, what's, what's going on? I, I feel a gap. Did I do something wrong? And the man was honest enough with him said, well, yeah, yeah, you did. Uh, it's, it's not so much what you did do, it's what you didn't do. See, part of our holy tradition is whenever the rector takes the chalice to give to communion, to give to the people, he would go over and he would lay his hand on the radiator of the church. And, and uh, the new guy's thinking, put his hand on the radiator. Is it blessing the church? Is it just taking the church before the individual? Maybe. I, I never goes through his books. I don't, I've never seen anything like this. So he calls the, the former rector up and says, you know, I really want to do a good job, but I'm already in trouble. And the rector says, well, what did you do? And he says, well, it's, it's not what I did. It's what I didn't do. I mean, the tradition, the people are telling me, holy tradition is that when you give the communion and you bring the chalice, you lay your hand on the radiator. First. Is that true? I don't do that. And the rector kind of says, oh, yeah, that is true. I do. I've done that every single time. I do it because I want to discharge any static electricity before I bring the stuff to the people. I don't want to shock anybody. <laughs> and the people had, had begun to see the traditions as sacred. They, they weren't, their worship wasn't directed by the word of God. It was being directed by uh, that which they'd done for many years, which was wise in some regards. Uh, but it wasn't the word of God. For, for me, for, for you, just as Jesus came 2,000 years ago and said, listen, when my people worship, two things have to be true. You have to worship in spirit. And you can worship wherever. Because worship is when all that I am rightly responds to all that he is. You have to worship in, in truth. Because worship is when all that I am rightly responds to all that he is. Ah, that's worship.